Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to speak with uh, a 14-year-old or 14, 15-year-old who was interested in being a pastor. And, you know, it's uh, not often that you get a chance to meet someone who's a high school student whose sole heart and ambition is to preach the gospel. So in speaking with him and talking to his parents, I said, in my mind, I was thinking, I do not want to be a Debbie Downer and try to tell him all the challenges that are going to come. But as I was uh, talking to his parents and listening to why he wanted to go into ministry, it, it did make me so excited. But at the same time, recognize there are challenges. And I want to flip that around to another person that I met in Villafranca. He is 99 years old. He was sitting right in front of me. And after I preached, where there's a translator, I'm speaking in English, and the translator's preaching in Spanish. And then afterward, he comes up to me and he says, I'm 99 years old. I've been a pastor for 80 years. And I, I am going to be preaching at a nursing home right after this service. And he said, I, I preached from Samaritan woman, John chapter 4. And he said, I'm, I was planning on preaching from the Samaritan woman, John 4. And then he said, do you mind if I preach your sermon? And I said, absolutely. It's not mine. It's ultimately the Lord's. And then he said, do you want to come and preach it yourself? <laughs> and I said, I was, we were just about to fly out that night. And I was, but more than anything, he just, we hugged each other. I was so thankful for this man. I mean, if you can imagine it, 80 years of ministry. He's 99 years old, going on to 100, and he's still preaching the gospel. What a, what a bookend of ministry and of life. Uh, a 14-year-old who says, I want to preach the gospel. I want to be a pastor. And then a 99-year-old. I say this because I wanted to introduce our speaker today. His name is Michael Chung. He's been with us for this past year. I have had the privilege and honor of getting to know him. And as he preaches today on the resurrection, one of the things that we've been speaking about of the gospel and gospel well is this idea of death and resurrection. And just as our Savior died and rose again, so too, I think, for those of us who are in pastoral ministry, we, we must go through the same thing. It's never easy. It's always painful. Death and resurrection. 
But it is in the dying of ourselves that we see the resurrected Lord. And when we do so, the church blossoms and it grows, not because of a pastor or a preacher, but because of a Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. I've been thankful to be able to meet with Michael in these past numbers of times as we've shared both the joys and the struggles of pastoral ministry. And um, it's not easy. It's with difficulty. But in him, I have seen a, a new humbling and a new growth. And as he prepares to plant a new church called the Mago Day Church in Castro Valley, I am excited that the gospel will go forth. This is his last Sunday with us. He's been with us, like I said, for a year and He's gotten to know some of us. In many ways, he's been sort of the pastor in residence to us. And so I've uh, been blessed by him. Michael, come on up. I want to pray for you as you, and for the church as you prepare. Um, yeah, and I want us to pray for him. Just a blessing. Let's pray together. Father, I lift up to you this dear brother. Um, thank you for that year ago as he came and as I had opportunities to see just the, the challenges of life and ministry, that truly in understanding and experiencing a little bit of your death, death to ourself, death to our ways of thinking and to what pastoral ministry looks like, what church planting looks like. But I do believe that through that death comes resurrection. And as he goes forward with the church, he and Christina, that you would cause them to lift their eyes to the Savior, to know that you are the one who is to be glorified, not Michael, not this church. But as he does so, and as the church, Mago Dei Church, as they go forward to proclaim Christ to Castro Valley, to the Bay Area, to the ends of the earth, Father, that you would remind him that his service unto you is really an outflow of his worship, his love, his desire. May he really be able to pray the prayer of John the Baptist, that he would decrease and that Christ would increase. And so surround him with men who will walk alongside with him, encourage him, lead alongside, shepherd, who will more than anything else not exhibit fruits of gifting and talent, but rather the character of Christ. And so by doing so together, that they will humbly shepherd your people, that they will lay down their lives just as Christ, you lay down your life for Michael. Bless him and Christina and the boys, and Lord, use them for your purposes, your kingdom, your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Michael. Oh. You. you know, I was in Spain, many hugs there, but I'm coming back to the Bay Area. I'm used oh, to then. Okay. this. Yes, thank you. Um, but this is on behalf of the church, um, just, a, just a small gift thank you. to start, and uh, we'll be praying for you. Thank you. Thank you for your kind... Thank you for your kind words, Pastor Sam. I, I want to express appreciation for this whole congregation. My family and I have been here, been here for a year, and the warmth 
and care that we have received has really uh, ministered to us. Um, we're still going to be connected because uh, my boys will still be involved in access. So we're, we're still going to hang around. We're still going to be involved. Um, I want to especially thank Pastor Sam, Pastor Fuji, the elders, Thomas and Michael, for their friendship, support, and um, we're going to continue a relationship, a, a, a friendship, and I, I really see this as a, a partnering church, uh, a sister church. And uh, I, I want to also add one word, which is um, I feel like as a sort of like an outsider who you know has been around but has also been inside this church for some time, I feel like I could say this with some authority that uh, having now gotten to know Pastor Sam quite a bit, I want you guys to know that I have found him to be among the most unpretentious, the most uh, sincere in his love and faith in Jesus of uh, any pastor that I've met. And I think it's a really um, rare jewel in this world where everyone is sort of like transitory and you know, everyone's on the move, on the make, the Pastor Sam has committed his life here, you know, to a people and to a place now for 25 years. Um, I think that's really special. And I want you guys to know how much I envy you, that you, you can be pastored by him like that. And so uh, with that in mind, um, let me pray before I preach. Heavenly Father, you have promised that your word will not come back empty, but will bring forth fruit that you have ordained 10, 20, 50 fold. Um, so we ask that of you humbly. That's our cry. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So today we are going to look at the resurrection. And I want you to know that the resurrection, and, and this cannot be overstated, is the most important, it is the most central event in Christianity because it is the chief evidence. It is the chief, it is the ultimate proof that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Messiah of God. He is the savior of the world. It is his ultimate vindication because it reverses the verdict of the cross. Because if there is no resurrection, do you know what that means? It means that he is a fraud. It means that his mission was a failure. We are still dead in our sins and there would be no Christianity. And therefore, when you read the gospel accounts, it goes to great lengths, great pains to give us a series of multiple, what are called resurrection appearances, where Jesus shows himself risen to his disciples and to his followers. And in John chapter 20, which is our passage, he shows himself to Thomas. It's a really famous story, because in this story, you can clearly see Thomas's struggling with doubts. He's, he's wrestling with his doubts because the other disciples have come to him and said, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. He's not dead. He's alive. And Thomas does not believe because it sounds beyond incredible. It sounds beyond all possibility. And then he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hand, unless I could put my fingers into his wounds, he says, I will never believe, never believe. Very dramatic story, right? And so today, I want to look at and I want to preach on Thomas's doubts. 
And I want to ask a broader question, which is, what is the role of doubt in the Christian faith? Are doubts good or are they bad? Some of you are saying, aren't doubts only bad, right? Isn't it bad to doubt? And my answer to you is, it depends. Because there is such a thing as good doubts, healthy doubts, what I'm going to call believing doubts. And I want to show you today that this story is an example of that, and that Thomas here is presented to us as a model, as a positive example that we should follow. And so what can we learn from Thomas? And so let's, let's do a dive, deep dive into the text. I have four points. Here's the outline. Number one, I want to show you a new way to read the story. We're actually going to spend half the sermon on this first point, a new way to read the story. Secondly, I want to show you the distinction between believing doubt and unbelieving doubt. Third, I want to give you some practical guidance. What should we do with our doubts? And then finally, we're going to close with the ultimate proof for Christianity. What is that? The ultimate proof. So number one, a new way to read the story. So I would like to make the case to you that the traditional reading of this story is completely wrong. Completely wrong. <laughs> because the way that most of us, the way that I was taught to read the story is that what Thomas is doing here, what Thomas is asking for, is wrong. Because he should have just believed, but he doubted. That's why he's called Doubting Thomas. And so he's sort of the final holdout among the disciples. The rest of the disciples believe, but not Thomas. He held on to his skepticism, his suspicion. And so he's not a very good disciple. And sort of the general point is, don't be like Thomas. And I want to show you that that framing of the story is completely wrong, and it's wrong on many levels. First of all, if what Thomas asked for is wrong, okay, if it's wrong, then why would Jesus give it to him? When you read throughout the Gospels, every time someone asks Jesus for illegitimate proof, he refuses. When the Pharisees say, show us a sign, prove to us that you're the Messiah, what does Jesus say? He says, no sign will be given to this unbelieving generation. And so if what Thomas asked for is wrong, like why doesn't Jesus say, Thomas, how could you? How long have you been with me now that you should ask for something that you know you shouldn't ask for? But what does the story say? It tells us that Jesus showed Thomas his body. He says, look, Thomas, look, touch my wounds. Put your fingers here and here. Moreover, if believing through visual empirical evidence is wrong, then why would Jesus give the other disciples the same evidence, right? If you look at verse, if you go back to verse 20, right? So verse 20 is just four verses before the passage that we have just read. This is what uh, Jesus is with the disciples, okay? And then this is what the text says. Jesus showed them, okay? Jesus showed them his hands and his side. And so the disciples were glad 
when they saw the Lord. And so what this is telling us is that the other disciples needed the same evidence. They needed to touch and to see. And the only difference between them and Thomas is not that Thomas is just more skeptical, more cynical than they were. The only difference is that Thomas just was not there. He didn't get to see the same evidence. And so I want you to know, this is a very serious point. Christianity is not asking for faith without evidence. You will never see in the Bible say, just believe. Don't ask any questions. The second thing is look at Thomas's response. In verse 28, right, when Thomas sees Jesus, he says, my Lord and my God. Do you know how breathtaking this is? This is the only place in all of the Gospels where someone addresses Jesus as God. Like straight up explicitly. This is the only place in the Gospels where a human being, okay, not a demon, in real time, meaning not later on in the epistles, ascribes to Jesus divinity. And therefore, this is the highest Christological statement in all of the Gospels. And if you read the commentaries, they'll tell you that therefore, this is actually the climactic scene in the Gospel of John. You can read the whole Gospel of John as this buildup, as this sort of leading up to this sort of apex moment where Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And we can even go further than that. Since John is the final gospel, it's the concluding gospel, it's the capstone of the gospels, this is the highest point in all four of the gospels. And so what this shows us, therefore, is that Thomas is not a weak, bad apostle. He is a great apostle because on his lips is the greatest statement of faith of any of the disciples. And so this story is not a cautionary tale. The story is not saying don't be like Thomas, but this story is for our, here for our encouragement, for our edification. It's saying what can we learn from Thomas and more broadly, what does this teach us about doubt? I think that for a lot of us who have grown up in the church, we were told that it's wrong to doubt. You should never doubt. And if you have substantial doubts, then maybe you're not really a Christian. Maybe you're not really saved. So that when people have these persistent, nagging doubts, it becomes this traumatic experience, right? This shouldn't be happening to me. So that when people doubt, they keep quiet. It becomes this thing full of fear and shame. Maybe something is defective in me. So the doubts becomes this terrible secret that must be kept hidden. I want you to know that if you have doubts, when you have doubts, I want you to know you're not alone. There are many people in the church. There are many leaders in the church who have doubts. I want you to know that I have doubts. 
I want you to know that many of the greatest Christians throughout history have struggled with doubts. And I want you to see in our passage that Thomas, the apostle, had doubts. He had intense doubts. And I want you to see that those doubts were not an obstacle to faith. They were the very gateway to faith. They did not hinder him from knowing Christ. They were the very means. They were the very channel, like pathway, by which he walked along that he could say at the end, my Lord, my God. And in the next point, I want to talk about how doubts do that, how they actually build our faith. But for the moment, I just want us to reflect on how amazing, how amazing it is that this passage exists. Because this is one of the most important foundational resurrection stories in the Bible. There's only a handful of them that establishes the truth of Christianity. This is one of the pillar texts. And at the center of it is someone filled with doubts, full of questions and uncertainty. And so, do you know what this means? It must mean that Jesus loves people with doubts. And he bears with our doubts. And he is full of compassion and patience. And he will not condemn us. He will not reject us. But he will supply us with the answers that he seeks. Just look at the way Jesus responded to Thomas. Now, before we move on, I have to address a question. Because some of you, very astute Bible readers, are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. What you're saying makes sense, but then how do you account for the fact that at the very end, Jesus rebukes Thomas for his doubt. Now, it does seem like that, doesn't it? And here I, I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit of an involving argument, okay? So please bear with me. I'm going to nerd out on you, but I think you can handle it, okay? So if you look at verse 29, let me set this up. So in verse 28, Thomas says, right, he sees Jesus. He says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus responds, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So it seems like Jesus is saying, Thomas, the only reason why you believe in me is because you have seen me. But it would have been much better. You would be more blessed if you could believe without the seeing. Now, that interpretation depends on reading the first part of what Jesus says here as a rhetorical question. And if it's a rhetorical question, it has like this edge to it, this sort of bite. Like Jesus is being very critical, right? He's, he's, he's giving a very negative assessment of Thomas. But if you read the original Greek, it is not a question because it lacks an interrogative. And I am, I am truly loath to do this. Because I really hated when pastors say, you know, in a sort of haughty tone, if you knew the original Greek, you would know that your translation is an error, right? And it gives you sort of this feeling that 
unless you read Koine Greek, you're not really reading the Bible. And so let me assure you, your modern English translations are fantastic. They are excellent. You are at no substantial disadvantage. All that being said, <laughs> um, if, I, I can, if I could say this humbly, I do think this is one of the very few places where the ESV translation has got it wrong. Because the ESV renders it as a question, but it's not a question because it lacks an interrogative. What is an interrogative? An interrogative is one of those key you know, questioning words. Who, what, where, why. It, it indicates that what you're saying is a question. Jesus does not use an interrogative. He starts his statement with the Greek word hati. Hati literally means because. It describes a causal relationship. And so if you just translate this straight up, literally, this is what he says. He says, because you have seen me, you believe. It is a straightforward declarative statement. He is simply describing to Thomas what is happening. Because you have seen me, you believe. He's explaining it to Thomas. This is how the NIV translates it. This is how most commentaries understand it. And I think the clincher is that D.A. Carson, okay, world-renowned biblical scholar, you know, president of Trinity Seminary, he says this is how you should read it, okay? Because you have seen me, you believe. Now, what does that all mean? Listen, Jesus is not saying it is wrong to believe through seeing. In fact, he's saying the very opposite. He's saying it is necessary for the disciples to have seen the evidence. And the reason is, you have to understand that the apostles had this very unique, critical role in the early church as official eyewitnesses. And then as, as official eyewitnesses, they were to go out and tell people what they saw. And so they had to see with their own eyes the evidence. You get this in, for example, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. Right? This is the Apostle John, the opening lines of his epistle. This is what he writes. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, we proclaim and testify to you. And so the disciples had to see and touch the risen Christ because the Great Commission relied on this foundational eyewitness testimony. That was the role of the, of the apostles. But if you understand that, that introduces another problem. And the additional problem is if it is good to see and then believe, what about the rest of us? What about all future generations like you and I who cannot see, who will not see, but then only have the testimony of the apostles as it is written down in the New Testament? What about us? And I want you to know that Jesus in the second part is addressing you and I. And what he's telling us is you're not missing out. Your faith is not defective for having not seen. And then he gives us this wonderful blessing and assurance. He says, faith without seeing is just as valid. It is just as saving. 
it will connect you to me just as much as it, de- as it did for the apostles. This is what 1 Peter chapter 1, 8 and 9 says. This is the apostle Peter, Peter, his opening lines of his epistles. Notice, by the way, all the apostles are saying the same thing. He writes, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So that's the first point. Doubt is not an obstacle to faith. It can be a gateway to faith. The second point is believing doubt versus unbelieving doubt. So I know it sounds rather strange to speak of believing doubt. Um, It sounds like a contradiction. But I want you to know that doubt is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is unbelief. What is unbelief? Unbelief is a willful rejection of God. It is a posture of hostility towards God, and then it uses doubt as a weapon, like a knife to jab at God. When the serpent said to Eve, did God really say that is unbelieving doubt? When the Pharisee said, can you show us a sign? That was not a genuine question, but it was a veiled attack. And so there is a kind of doubt that asks questions, but it's not really seeking answers. It's not seeking the truth because it's actually trying to undermine the truth. It's not an honest inquiry because it has already made up its mind. On the other hand, there is a doubt where it is truly seeking the truth. It is asking questions, not because it already knows the answers, because, but because it doesn't know. And so I want you to know that there's two very different kinds of doubts. And so it's not the doubt itself that matters, it's what you do with the doubt. Or let me put it another way. The fundamental question we should be asking is, where do doubts come from? Where do questions come from? Does it come from sin? No. It comes from our finitude. It comes from our limitedness as human beings because there's so much that we don't know. And so the question that we should be asking is, what does it mean to doubt while we are believing, what I'm calling believing doubt. And the answer is, do you remember what Jesus taught us? He says, I want you to have faith like a little child. Think about little children. They are full of questions. When my boys were younger, they would always say to me, but why, Daddy, why? No end to their questions. Now, when your children ask, why are they asking you? Is it because they're skeptical about you? No, it's because they believe you have the answers. They have this deep confidence that you can provide them satisfying answers. And that is childlike faith. 
Childlike faith is not the absence of questions. It is a multitude of questions. Do you understand? So again, it is not about the doubt itself. It is what you do with your doubts that matter. Do you use your doubts to challenge God, to put him in the dock, to put him on trial? Or do you take your doubts to God like a little child seeking the truth, confident that he has the answers? Perhaps the most famous doubter in the Bible after Thomas is John the Baptist. Um, do you remember that scene? It's recorded in uh, Matthew 11, uh, Luke chapter 7, where John the Baptist is arrested. And then he's put in prison. He's held in King Herod's dungeon. And then the text says that the years roll by and all hope seems lost. And then John the Baptist begins to doubt. And then he sends messengers to Jesus asking him, are you the one to come or shall we look for another? He's saying to Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Because I'm not sure anymore. I want you to know, this is John the Baptist, whom Jesus called the greatest prophet who has ever lived, and he is full of doubts. And how did Jesus respond to John the Baptist? Did he say to John, get out of town. How dare you doubt me? Or did he say to John, just believe. I don't want you to have any doubts. I don't want you to ask any questions. He says to John, this is so marvelous. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the poor have good news preached to them. He tells these messengers, go and tell John what you see, what you hear. Jesus provides answers. He gives evidence upon evidence. He does not ask for blind faith, but he gives reasons. He quotes scripture. He tells John, read Isaiah. See if it matches what you are hearing, what you are seeing. Sometimes we're afraid that we're afraid where our doubts will lead us. We're afraid that if we ask really hard questions, there won't be solid answers. And then maybe we're going to lose our faith. Maybe if we ask too many questions, we're going to not become a Christian anymore. And that thought is terrifying for many of us. But I want you to know, do you think Christianity is so weak and fragile that it cannot survive scrutiny? Imagine that you go to a car dealership, car dealership and you're looking to buy a car. And so you go up to this particular car and a salesman rushes up to you and he says, don't look at that. Don't touch that. I want you to just look at me and I want you to believe. Don't have any doubts. Don't ask any questions. That's not confidence building. But if the salesman has a really solid car, 
he will say to you, go ahead, kick the tires, take it out for a test drive, really put it through its paces, do some hard corners on it, because he knows that that kind of rigorous scrutiny will only prove the worthiness of the car. I want you to know, don't be afraid of your doubts. Don't be afraid of your doubts. But let your doubts be this positive energy that drives you into scripture, that drives you to prayer. I, I want you to know that your doubts are a gift because those with the greatest doubts are capable of the greatest faith. Just look at Thomas. Look at John the Baptist. Third point what to do with our doubts. And here I'm going to go much more quickly. We've already talked about this, but let me give you two more words of guidance. The first thing is you should process your doubts in community. Look at Thomas. He's gathered with the disciples. He hears their reports of Jesus' resurrection. He has doubts, right? Serious doubts. And then what happens? It says eight days later, he's with them again. His doubts did not cause him to reject Christian community. It caused him to cling to them all the more. When you have doubts, you need your Christian friends to walk alongside of you, to reason with you, to process your doubts with you. You cannot, you should not do it alone. And by the way, this is an argument for coming to church. Because did you notice in verse 26, it says eight days later. It's awfully specific, right? Eight days later. What is this in reference to? Well, let me explain. So you have to understand, on Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. He showed himself to the disciples. But for whatever reason, Thomas was not there. Okay, So Thomas is absent. And then it says eight days later. Now, in Hebrew culture, you should know that they counted the days inclusively. So what that means is that both Sundays are being included here. And therefore, when it says eight days later, what is it in reference to? This is the following Sunday. This is the Sunday after Easter. They're all gathered together because this is the beginnings of church. And Thomas is there, right? Thomas is in church. And so what should we do with our doubts? Go to church. <laughs> Listen to the sermon. Sing the songs. If you're not in a place where you can sing the songs, listen to the songs. And then keep going. And keep going. And keep going. Because it just might be that one Sunday, Jesus will show up and give you the answers that you seek. The second um, word of guidance is do not expect quick answers. Notice that Thomas expresses his doubts on the first day, and then what happens? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing happens. Jesus knows Thomas is full of questions, full of, of doubts, but Jesus does not immediately answer them. 
but he lets Thomas sit with his doubts. Did you notice that? And I want you to imagine what it must have been like for Thomas, okay? Eight agonizing days. He's full of, of anxiety and, and questions. He, he, he's trying to piece all the, put all the pieces together, but, but it doesn't fit. It, it, he doesn't understand. But he perseveres. He doesn't give up. He keeps searching. He keeps seeking the truth. He goes to church. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Do not give up. Persevere in your doubts. Let me add one more thing here. I want you to know that to follow Christ does not require that all of your questions be fully answered. There can be gaps. There can be holes in your understanding, sometimes substantial gaps. You can have all kinds of questions about the compatibility of Christianity and modern science. You can have all kinds of questions about the historical reliability of the Bible or the very difficult issue of homosexuality or predestination or gender roles, a plethora of questions all perplexing questions, and I want you to know they are all important questions, but they are not the central question. The central question is who is Jesus? That's the central question. And once Thomas had an answer to that question, he was able to say, my Lord, my God. That's what made him a Christian. That is the essence of Christianity. My last point, the ultimate proof. So in the story, Thomas says, I need evidence. <laughs> I need solid, overwhelming, irrefutable evidence. I need proof that I can see and touch. And then Jesus comes and he says, do you want proof? Let me give you the ultimate proof. And then he says, look at my wounds. He says, Thomas, look at how the Roman cross ripped my body apart. That's the ultimate proof. It's his wounds. Do you know how amazing this is? What if the ultimate proof of Christianity is that the name of God is written on the far side of the moon, and then it was not until the 20th century that you know, astronauts discovered it, and people were like, whoa, how do you explain that, right? Or what if the ultimate proof is that every night, emblazed in fire in the night sky were the words, God is real, every night, everyone would be convinced. There would be no atheists in the world, right? Everyone would know that God exists. But I want you to know that would not change you. That would not transform you. 
I want you to know that it is possible to be a theist. It is possible to know that God exists and still live a reprehensible life, to live a life that is lost and without hope in this world. Because ultimately, what you need to know is not merely that God exists. You need to know that he loves you. That he loves you. You see, Christianity says that God created this world as our loving father, but that humanity turned away from him. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, Isaiah 53, 6. And therefore, we deserve the judgment of God. We deserve what Jesus says, to be cast out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That through his sacrificial death, through his wounds, we are saved. I want you to know that if you believe this, if you receive it, it will change you. Because it means that not only that God exists, it means that he loves you. He gave his son to die for you. Do you understand how loved you are? The Bible says that you are the apple of his eye, Psalm 17.8. The Bible says that God sings over you as he carries you in his arms like a little child, Zephaniah 3.17. You are his most treasured possession, 1 Peter 2.9. You are his beloved son, Ephesians 1.5. You are his beautiful bride. He's ravished by you. Revelation 21.2. Are you starting to get the picture? If you are so loved like that, how can you not love him back? How can you not give your whole life to him? Look at his wounds. Look at his wounds. Let's pray. Each of us in this room, every one of us, we struggle with our doubts. We struggle with unanswered questions in varying degrees. But we confess with the Apostle Peter, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so we pray our humble cry is, Lord, please speak to us in the word, in the spirit. Help us to see you. Help us to see your wounds. Help us to see you love us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.